0: Hello everyone,
1: good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 minutes. Oh, by the way, this is our 70th 70th show. Uh, A signal anniversary, really. You know, it's been another great day for British democracy. We hear from Sky News that the UK has abandoned climate change commitments made fairly recently in Paris, Uh, to secure a trade deal with Oz. Uh, Despite this, (laughs) apparently, this deal is still not done. (laughs) Now, quite why the Australians want to abandon uh, climate change commitments is a moot point, and I hope somebody is uh, busy researching that right now. Thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, Tonight, we'll be talking to historian and author James Hawes about his books, his singing uh, sessions with Line of Duty star Adrian Dunbar in Copenhagen, about the future of England and Scotland, and so much more besides. And he's taking your questions live. Details are on the What's On guide if you want to send us your comments and questions. And as you know, TNT stands for The Nation Talks. So in many respects, this is your show. We are live and we are free. So no license, no problem. You can enjoy the show. Now to our guest. Oh, I should tell you, by the way, and because and, uh, it is important. Uh, Kevin, our producer, has COVID. And uh, I hope you send your sympathies to him, uh, because despite that, what a trooper. He's producing the show tonight. Well, how are you, James, and how has the pandemic affected you?
0: Very well. Very sad to hear about Kevin. There, uh, my, my my younger brother has has long COVID as well. I know it's a difficult difficult thing to cope with. So, fair play to him for keeping us going.
1: So, tell us a bit about James Hawes. I, I've described you as an historian, a singer, <laughs> with Indian Dunbar, <laughs> among
0: many others. I, well, I, I was initially a university lecturer in, in Ireland, where I learned the joys of singing in pubs. And then got, got confident I enough to do it for, for money, and even beer uh, sorry, beer and even money. Um, uh, a wild, wild mixture of, of Irish rebel songs. and uh, my, one of my great favorites was, was "And is Bonnie Dundee." I could guarantee you to get a pub rocking along to that to this day. <laughs> Run me a guitar and gave me a pint. Um, uh, and then I, I started becoming a novelist, I became a teacher of creative writing, and then, thank God, a publisher called me up uh, five years ago now. And said, "Would you do a sh- a sh- the shortest history of Germany for nothing?" And I just—I I loved the, the daring of saying that to me. And I was broke, and I just had a three-month-old baby from my half, from my Irish, but genetically German, nationally inherited German wife. And I said, "Yes, I would do that for nothing." And uh, luckily enough, it did it did very well all around the world. So we followed up with the, uh, the shortest history of England, which is currently number five in the Times, I believe. So um, that's that's me. Um, I was I'm English by birth and upbringing, but I'm also quarter Scot. Uh, I was brought up in Edinburgh in those vital years, the years six to twelve, when you really you know your, your life is laid down for you. So although your your listeners may find this now slightly hard to believe, at the age of twelve, I had a thoroughgoing Edinburgh accent, and um, the proof of which is that when I came down to England, I got the crap kicked out of me for it, and rapidly lost it. Um, but I still you know. I, I could never, ever not cheer for Scotland. Not just cheer, go wild for Scotland in, in the in the Calcutta Cup, for example. It's it's in it's in there. We did quite near Murrayfield. My father would take me down there and see the matches. Um, so English Scots, I'm married to a, an Irish Protestant, and I have two bilingual, welsh speaking sons. So I am the United Kingdom, that sadly now doomed entity, is my is me. So I'm fascinated, above all, with what's going to happen in Scotland, which is going to be the next place to leave it.
1: Interesting you should say that. And obviously, uh, you know, many people have been, had a chance to read your piece in Prospect magazine. Perhaps you could enlarge on that. You, you say that England, the future of England is open, wide open, and that may in turn uh, uh, have a, a major impact on independence for Scotland. Why do you say that and, and what is your contention?
0: My contention essentially is that the UK is not only doomed, but it has been doomed for over a century. Um, And in a sense, one of my prize exhibits in the book is is none other than Winston Churchill in 1912, of course MP for Dundee at that stage, a liberal MP for Dundee, trying to hold his beloved UK together, the this HQ of his beloved empire. And he put his finger on the fact that the force that was going to blow it apart was actually... England. That it was England, the split within England, the dominance of the southern part of England within England and its refusal to let go, that would make impossible his dream. And it's a dream which in many ways one has to regret. Don't forget, in 1912 very few people even in Ireland wanted full independence. On the other hand, lest we forget, there was a Scottish Home Rule Bill, of course, forgotten by so many people now that was already on its way through Parliament in 1912. The UK was clearly collapsing. Churchill was desperate to hold it together, but he realized it could only work as a genuine union of free peoples who would each send their representative to what he calls an imperial parliament. But he put his finger on the problem was that England itself would have to be split up to make that work. And because it hasn't been, the UK is hopeless. And you know, if anyone, if anyone says that's exaggerated, all I can say, well, it's not me, it's Winston Churchill.
1: How, how 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 do you visualize England being split up? Would it be north and south or would be well,
0: Churchill Churchill's words would it had to be divided into several great self-governing areas? Well he mentioned he mentioned in 1912 and he he, he repeated himself in 1913. He um, he mentioned that Yorkshire, Lancashire, and the Midlands could be given basically federal powers. Um the problem in England is this that you know, from the very beginning. Since before it was called England, in fact. England itself is split. Now, to Scottish viewers, that's familiar, the familiar notion of the Great Glen splitting Scotland. England is just a split by essentially by the River Trent. The whole, the whole geology, the whole agriculture, the, even the weather patterns are different north of that. And again and again in the history of England, that's been the split, the unacknowledged split, which around which English politics goes around in this endlessly like a black hole, really. It's interesting,
1: too, that you you make them... So so there's a... Just like the Great Glen, there's a geological split and the the Trent and the Humber, etc. You also make the point that... um, that the elite in the South, in particular, uh, had a specific approach to ensuring their dominance, Uh, even if it meant uh, recruiting... Monarchs from elsewhere, if that worked. But, tell, yeah. tell, us, tell us what you, what well, you think about England, that. You
0: every country has its own trauma, its own past, its own splits. You know, and I know I, I I, this. When I was in Edinburgh at the age of nine, I was walking around going, hail, hail the Pope's in jail, kick him in the Is having never known, no idea at all who the Pope was. So every country has its tensions and things. In England, the, the, the great one is that not only is the country split north and south, it always has been. You know, the Venerable Bede noted this 1,300 years ago, and a map, drawn, a map drawn along the line described by the Venerable Bede is exactly the same as a map produced today saying social inequality in England, exactly the same. Um, but England uniquely, and this is, this is what makes England uniquely damaged in the whole of Europe, in my experience, and I know several countries in Europe very well, is that overlaid over that regional or, or almost national split within England, there is the class thing. Which is the product of the fact that England was only ever really unified, that, that north south divide was only ever really overcome by foreign conquerors. The first person to actually call England England in documents was Knut of Denmark, its first foreign colonizer. Just 50 years later, of course, comes the deluge for England with the, the Norman conquest, which meant that for the next, well, up till now, frankly. England uniquely in Europe has this elite which is culturally different and everybody knows it and I'm going to prove it to you right now. Your listeners might enjoy this. I could talk to you right now with only words taken straight out of the mouths of our Anglo-Saxon forefathers or we could continue this discourse employing vocabulary derived entirely from the French language. Now those are both English But there are different levels. And every Englishman, when he meets another Englishman, immediately knows which side of that he's on. So an Englishman knows straight away, are you north or south? He knows straight away, are you posh or not? Are you elite or not? Whatever the word is. And that leads to England itself being such a messed up country that, that one really doesn't know. I mean, I have no idea what's going to become of England when it is once again alone in the world, which it soon will be for the first time since 1707.
1: How, how do you think that will happen? I mean, there's lots of people watching us tonight and thinking, great, James, this is fantastic. This is the sort of news that I was hoping to hear. But they'll also be at the same time puzzled. They'll be saying, how is it going to happen? I mean, they'll, they'll take your point about England, I suspect, but they may still be thinking, how will that affect Scotland? I mean, how's that going to work?
0: Well, let, let's just, just start off by saying, by, by making it plain that the UK has been collapsing since 1921. I mean, the, the United Kingdom was only invented as a, as a state in 1801 to control Ireland. Now, most of Ireland left, and frankly, all of it should have done in 1921. So, what we call the what we now call the UK is, since 1921, just a weird little rump, which is, and no one really cared about what was left of Northern Ireland, which is why it was allowed to go its own sweet way into becoming a kind of a bizarre paramilitary, you know, one-party, one-governor state between the wars. Now, so. First place, let's make it clear, the UK is collapsing. It's been held together, probably by, just by two world wars more than anything else. Um, it will come. The collapse will come. It's been going for 100 years. How it will come is a fascinating question. I believe it will come more quickly than we now expect. And that the immediate cause of that will be something which appears quite small initially and is certainly impossible to predict. For example, you know, I, I was a... My first job was, I was at university in Ireland, In my first job was as a a lecturer of German studies. And half my colleagues there were experts in East German literature and culture. And none of us foresaw in the summer of 1989 that within a year, Germany would be completely united again. We would have thought it was completely impossible. And the initial cause was simply that they opened the border between East Germany and Hungary to let some holiday makes, to let some steam off, as they thought. And from that, the whole thing just unwound, overnight almost, and something like that will happen. I can't predict what it might be. It could be a dispute over the nuclear submarine bases. It could be something to do with COVID. I thought, you know, I was thinking, your listeners, viewers might like this idea. You know, if you cast your mind back, dear viewers, to just two two years ago, before the COVID epidemic, if someone had asked you then, can you think of any circumstances in which the Parliament of Scotland, the government of Scotland, will actually say it's going to close the border and turn English registered cars back. You would have said that's nonsense, that's science fiction. But it's happened. Something, see, something like that will happen. Now, under those circumstances, I was thinking this just earlier in the year when the lockdown was severe. Imagine now a very aggressive English lorry driver refuses to stop and by refusing to stop knocks down a Scottish policeman. Then suddenly you're in a kind of Northern Ireland situation, quite potentially there. These, the, the, when history is going in a, in a certain direction, which it is, The tipping point will come from something small, but it will come.
1: It is extraordinary, and it's also extraordinary um, you mentioned trucks and traffic being turned back at the Welsh border. But when I read some of the pronouncements by the Welsh First Minister, sometimes it sounds a bit like uh, even though he's Labour, it, it sounds like very nationalist tones. I mean, he's he uses the same sort of logic
0: that a Scottish nationalist would use, except he's talking about Wales. Fascinating thing: Welsh labour is rapidly rebranding itself, I suspect, in the kind of semi-conscious realisation that, that Wales will not be long after, if only out of national pride. Why would the Welsh put up with being the very last colony of England? They won't, once Scotland's gone. Oh,
1: you, you, you sort of hinted at the fact that uh, Ireland might well be uh, reunified at some stage, fairly soon. Uh, m-
0: maybe I o- over um, overdeveloped your
1: your remarks, but uh, is that your feeling? Is that the-
0: well, the Good Friday Agreement can t- contains a provision that when it appears obvious, and I'm not sure the exact wording. And of course, the devil's always in the detail. But there is wording which I don't know myself off the top of my head, which says that you know, if it becomes self-evident or worth that effect. That, that a majority would want to unite a referendum must be held on it. Now, that's, there's a new census this year in Northern Ireland uh, which will almost certainly confirm that is the case. Um, the loyalists only have, only have a majority in the over-60s now. Um, it's, it, again, history is going only one way there. And that, of course, is deeply tied up with Scotland because the whole of, the whole of modern Scottish loyalism, um, which many people point to understandably as, as a kind of, you know, the, the thorn in the thorn in in the dream of a a new and and wonderful uh, free scotland that the birth of that is is totally tied up with 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 ulster loyalism it's unthinkable without it it's really only a secondary effect of it Uh, and once that is once that situation is cured then then god willing it's it's nephew its stepson scottish loyalism will also have to think again about what on earth it's saying and to whom it's loyal. I mean, if, Scot- if, if there's an independent Scotland, to whom are, are loyalists loyal? To England? Really? That just doesn't play at all, does it? Either in Scotland or I presume, either in Ulster or I presume in, 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 uh, in Glasgow.
1: Well, I suppose, I mean, I have no knowledge of this. So I'm, I'm simply speculating it's a shot in the dark. I suppose they might argue, well, we, we would remain loyal to the Queen. Assuming she's still around. Absolutely. Well,
0: again, that, 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 that thereby hangs the whole tale, really, John. I mean, we, we need to look at the whole... If you look at the whole history of what we now call Great Britain and all the United Kingdom, because we get confused ourselves, the, the, the vital point about it is, and this is what I try to ram home in the book, is that if you look at the maps of the election, as soon as people got the vote, the majority of males got the vote in 1884, they voted in a way which showed that basically... Nobody wanted it. Great Britain and then the United Kingdom were constructed by elites with no consultation whatever among the common people of England, Scotland, Wales or Ireland, any of them. They were elite constructs and they worked perfectly well until the common people got their own voice. And if you look at the maps of 1885, you will find that straight away our modern politics appears. Ireland votes to go nationalist straight away and there's a league between the north of England and the Scots and Welsh against the south of England, which immediately turned and has remained Tory. That's the fault line. And what we call the Labour Party is really just a name for what I would call the Outer British Alliance, which is why the Labour Party, why thinking Labour Party, people like my good friend John Turner, are so passionately opposed to the SNP because they know in their hearts the Labour Party never was an English party at all. It was only ever a party of the United Kingdom. And then after Ireland left of Great Britain, without Scotland, it is nothing. It's, not, it's no coincidence that its first five leaders were Scotsmen. You know, their 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 frankly hatred of the SNP is grounded in the fact that they know it's killed the Labour Party as an entity. Without Scotland, it is dead. It cannot continue.
1: I think a lot of people will will that that what you just said will chime with them because that seems to be almost the daily experience here, where third-rate politicians uh, occupy the opposition benches at Holyrood. Uh, seem to be mouthing slogans that don't appear to make much sense. They're just opposition for opposition's sake. We now have a situation,
0: that's for example, to do That's why I say in that article, which you kindly mentioned, John, I mean, if you look at those, those maps of uh, the way we all voted as soon as we got the vote, it's exactly the same as the sides in the Civil War, really, with with the small exception that Scotland very foolishly intervened on the side of Cromwell, you know, decisively in 1644. Without the Scots, Master War would have been lost, undoubtedly. Uh, by, by Cromwell and the king would have won the war. Now, pretty soon the Scots realised the error of their ways and, and fought for the king, obviously, uh, at Dunbar and were beaten by Cromwell then. But the, but the sides in the civil war were essentially the same as, a, as a electoral maps of the late 19th century. But you have the, the trouble is, is that the, the, what we call the Gladstone's Liberal Party and then the Labour Party afterwards has this huge internal contradiction within that alliance, and that is this. The leaders of it have, you know, right from Gladstone right up to Blair, had to claim that they'd found some sort of magic formula which would both satisfy nationalists and keep the UK together. It started with Gladstone and Irish independence and going right, you know, right up to Blair, saying that his devolution would, would, would was, you know, put an end to, to wishes for independence. And there's a clear contradiction in that. You know, why should the Scots and Welsh fight alongside the Northern English if they to defeat the Southern English Tories except to gain their independence. But the Northern English need them desperately. So the Labour, part, the Labour Party, which has numerically always been based in the north of England, actually, desperately needs the Scots and, of course, the Welsh, the industrial Scots, industrial Welsh, without whom it's nothing. And that's the root of its collapse. That seems to be borne out by the opinion polls. I mean, even
1: in the light of perhaps the worst UK government there's been for many generations, the Labour Party is languishing, sometimes fairly, at five, ten percentage points behind. Absolutely, the level nowhere.
0: It, 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 because it's, it's, it's backbone. It's, it's nature has gone. I say it, 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 what, it, it, its fate was sealed, as was the fate of the UK in 2015. Um, and those who, those who blame Scotland for that, should think twice. Because if we remember, in the general election of 2015, at that time the SNP held the princely six seats before the election. And the, the Scotland had just, what everyone thinks of the vote, had just appeared to reaffirm its allegiance to the Union on the firm promise of everybody there'd be more devolution and we'd stay in the EU. But the general election of 2015, for the first time since 1745, the Conservative Party cast Scotland as virtually an enemy state. If you look back at the head, not the famous, the famous poster of, of Miliband being merely a puppet of Alex Salmond. Or you look at the the Daily Mail headlines saying Nicola Sturgeon, the most dangerous woman in the the country and things like that. Scotland was basically cast as an enemy state and Boris Johnson in particular approved that publicly. Other conservatives, understandably, were somewhat scared of that because they realised the effect on the the union. Johnson thought it was great. Uh, And in that we see, I I, I am of the opinion, I believe I've shown it in the book, that the the secret motor of Brexit is, is a revolt of the Southern English against the UK. As much as against Europe, if you look at the polls in 2018, 2019, everyone was astonished to see that a majority of Conservative voters, i.e., a majority of Southern English Conservative voters, the they're they're majority always in the South, were perfectly happy to see Scotland leave, and even happy to see the Conservative Party destroyed in order to get Brexit. It, it was so. Ultimately, it's it's a revolt of the Southern English who have again and again. in in history, whether it's the Civil War or whether it's it's Gladstone or whether it's Tony Blair, they hate the fact that they have at times been outvoted by this league of the Celts and the Northern English. Margaret Thatcher hated it above all. That's why she waged war on the miners who were all from Northern England, Scotland and Wales. Not coincidentally. It was the latest version of that battle.
1: You Um, you described the nationalism of the south of England as four nationalism.
0: It's it's a very strange strange thing. I mean, the Conservative Party, since the dawn of democracy, the Conservative Party, in in the late 19th century, the Conservative Party has managed to persuade the Southern English that they are somehow the most favoured nation within the UK, never mind within the world, under the empire. Now, their electoral tactic, which they needed to do before, before Ireland left because of the numbers, they had to chip away at the Celtic vote of the, of the Outer British League. And they did so by absolutely embracing sectarianism. And when we talk about sectarianism in Elster, or we talk about sectarianism in Scotland, we have to remember that it was absolutely consciously uh, had the bellows blown upon it by people like Randolph Churchill, by people like Bonalore, Law and Ulster Scott himself, who went around the place before the First World War, you know, all but openly saying that they would support civil war rather than uh, give uh, Irish home rule, which was the policy of the, the democratic elected government of the UK at that time. So our, 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 our deep divisions within the, what's blown the UK apart, finally, and, and, and the catastrophic oppositions within it, it's all come down to that sense that somehow the South of England must rule the rest completely and will try to divide and rule, just a bit support away from, from the outer from British.
1: So is it your view that uh, Boris Johnson in that case is not some aberration, but in fact, an extension of an established
0: uh, trajectory? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I put it, as I say in the book, I mean, basically what happened in that under Johnson, the Conservative Party has embraced the destiny which was actually manifest since 1885 and become the party, the, the, the party of the Southern English nationalists. That was its, That was always its natural fate. And so you can see that if you just look at the maps of 1885 and onwards, or any electoral map from 1885 to the present day, will show the whole southeast of England as a solid Tory fortress. Now, why is that? It's tribal. Much, and that's the secret of UK politics, which someone like Peter Mandelson understood, which is why he famously said that the next Scottish leader had to be born in Scotland, as were both Blair and Brown, but he had to be able to appeal to the English South because doesn't realised it's all about tribes in UK politics. The Southern English are a different tribe from the Northern English. The tribe of the Northern English seeks to ally with the tribes of Scotland and Wales in order to defend itself against the Southern English. It's Game of Thrones, basically. It's not politics, not ideology at all. And that's why I wouldn't wire my head about what the ideology of independent Scotland is. That's the secondary question, uh, because UK politics is fundamentally not about ideology, it's about tribal identities, and always has been.
1: And Charles Smith is asking the question, do you think that England has been captured by the city of London?
0: Well, the, the, the southern England has always been centred on London. you are know, talking about since, since the days of the Tudors. The Tudors were the first who really tried to, to impose the dominance of southern England on the rest of Britain. Um, and for them... Since since the well, since the 18th century, really, the 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 idea of the of of London as the centre of a world trading financial empire, as opposed to the north of England or Scotland and Wales, the industrial Scots and Welsh with with mines and steelworks and so forth, has become firmly entrenched. So that basically the problem is that the, the economies of the South of England and the rest of the UK are are not just not they're just completely incompatible. What's what's good for one is bad for the other, because what's good for someone who wants utter free trade, free flows of capital, no tariff barriers and things, is directly bad for, for, for nations or regions which need to have things like the, ship, the shipyards protected. And so that you, you, you simply cannot please them both at the same time. Which is why we see, say, in the 1920s, where where you know the, the the government of the conservative government in the 20s just embraced going back to the gold standard, which was catastrophic for industry from Belfast to Glasgow to the north of England to South Wales, but great for the City of London, who was what wanted it.
1: So, if you had to uh, depict a picture of England, say, 10 years from now, what would it look like?
0: It will be alone in the world for the first time since 1707. It will be a country deeply split because once the kind of the smokescreen of Great Britain and the UK has finally left the stage, you will see a country as divided in 10 years as it was when the Venerable Bede, 1,300 years ago, first talked, as he did nine times in his book, about the fundamental split between Northerners and Southerners. And England will then be faced in a bizarre way with its own kind of post-colonial situation of having to decide what the hell it really is after all these years of of, of strange situation of being itself under the sway of a culturally foreign elite and being bossing around its smaller neighbours. The result is, as I'm afraid, I have have not... I don't think it's going to be pleasant at all. Because... The English, in particular, the southern English, have for so long been told by their betters for their own reasons that they are somehow special, they're somehow entitled, they have a right to a so-so in the world that rather like the Russians, they are now prey we see it in Brexit, they fall fallen prey to, 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 to mad conspiracy theories about how someone has robbed them of their victory. You now, we won the war, but the Germans cheated us of the peace, that we had an empire, now someone's stolen it from us. Who is that, you know? Um, and that sense of an entitlement gone lost. Is one of the most dangerous political things as we see in America. You know, if you a group of people who feel that they were once on top and are now no longer and have been cheated of that by the bad guys, they are very dangerous. And I myself have have quite dark thoughts about where England might be in 10 years.
1: Yeah, it is, it seems to resonate with the, the whole Brexit debate, which seemed to be predicated upon. We've been cheated by Europe, they are twisting, they're distorting. Uh, if we leave, we'll get £350 million uh, for the NHS per week or whatever. Uh, just nonsense, frankly. It was
0: always in the back of their minds right from the early 90s when they began. Remember John Major calling them bastards, all these people like the young Daniel Hannon um, and his older friends then? Their dream was always to be, to all intents and purposes, the 52nd State of America. They, they, that, that was the, the, it, was, it was this thing of the Anglosphere that people like Niall Ferguson talked about so much in the 90s. The Ulster Scots values. A, that we, were, and at that stage, they talked to the whole of Britain. That's what's so fascinating. The, early, the 90s anti-EU people thought they'd take the whole of Britain away with Ulster Scots values to join in a kind of an Anglosphere. But later on, they changed that, to this, this myth of England defending itself against Europe. Uh, because they changed, their phobia, they changed their whole story to appeal to, to, to a particularly English uh, votership, um, and as the professor of social geography at Oxford pointed out, you know, wherever who doesn't matter who had the highest percentages, the votes for Brexit stacked up in the south of England.
1: It's interesting. You, now, you you uh, you've been interviewed recently on German television uh, about Scotland and matters British. What were you saying to that, to the German viewers and listeners?
0: I, I, I explained to them that uh, if there were a hard Brexit, which has now happened, uh, Scotland would be independent in five years. I put my money on the table there, uh, and it's, it's still lying there, and I think it's looking pretty bright.
1: Well, it's interesting that, uh, I mean, what reaction do you get in Germany generally? I mean, this is a, a very loose question for which I apologise, but well, if fact, I don't ask it, people will be thinking, yeah. you ought to have asked James that.
0: Uh, it's, it's, it's a first, it's, it's kind of disbelief, which I also get a lot in England, when people say, what do you mean the UK collapse? How can, how can such a wonderful thing? And I say, well, look, it's, what happened to Ireland in 1921, for God's sake? Do you have any idea about history? You know, a, it has been collapsing for a long time, and B, of course things, go. the USSR collapsed, the British Empire collapsed for crying out loud. You know, when my mother was born, we still owned India and half of Africa for crying out loud. You know, all that's gone. So why should not the UK and the GB go to, please? There's nothing holy about them. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a, it reminds me of the old joke about the Irish child who um, was shown a map of the world with all this red from end to end. And the teacher said, um, so uh, what, what do you think, Johnny, about, about the empire? Uh, do you know the sun never sets on the British Empire? What do you think of that? And he said, that's because God doesn't trust the British in the dark. <laughs> An old one, but probably fairly, fairly valid in, in some respects. But so people, are, is there any sense? Uh, I mean, are you, are you invited on those shows because uh, you understand Scotland and, and Ireland, or are you invited because they need somebody uh, from the UK to talk generally about the UK?
0: Uh, well, mainly it's because I, I wrote a book called The Shortest History of Germany, which, which identified, you know, a, 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 a complete geographical and cultural split in Germany, which most Germans, likewise, were, were not really aware of. Um, again, most, most Germans would think that the, the East-West split, which is really clear, if you look at their voting patterns to this right now, um, that's somehow a product of the Soviet occupation for 40 years, of East Germany West Germany, and it's not at all. Those patterns go back way, way beyond um, the east and west of Germany have always been very, very different places. I mean, w- the, 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 what's now East Germany, there wasn't a single German living there until almost 1200. It was a, it was a colony. And, and so, in fact, it's interesting. It happened exactly the same time as, as the British tried to colonise Ireland. Um, and for some of the same reasons, climactic and so forth. The weather was much better then. So poor, poor areas were suddenly highly desirable. Um, and 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 in both cases, what you get is a, is a long colonial situation, which fundamentally alters politics. So, people who live in a colony, like Ulster Protestants, for hundreds of years, where if you live in a place where for hundreds of years you think, and quite understandably, that the people who you took the land from are still there, and one fine night they might knock you on the head, unless you're careful, you will you will over the generations develop instinctively an authoritarian us and them way of looking at things. That was a situation of the Germans beyond the River Elba, surrounded as they were by Slavic peoples, and us to this day still are. It would, and it was a situation of the French in Algeria. It's a situation of the, 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 white, the whites in, in in South America surrounded by the black, black population who they'd enslaved. And it was a situation of the Protestants in Ireland. And then if, if, if you, it's not a question of guilty conscience. It's just the fact you know damn well they're still there and you know damn well they don't like you much. In fact, they probably hate your guts. And if you do not maintain a kind of paramilitary government, which will ride to the rescue with yeomanry or cavalry or whatever at any given moment and use the iron fist, those guys might well come back one day and take back the house. So living in a colony makes people very, very different. It's not, it's neither good for colonizer nor colonized. Um, and it's almost, almost the worst case is a half successful colonization because then you have the the situation is never finally decided. Um, and that's so uh, that, that's, that, that's why I get invited on German shows. Anyway, to, to answer your question around about way, because I've, I've tried, tried to show them their own history, and I, I'm glad to say the book has been a pretty big bestseller in Germany because um, I've opened their own eyes. So I'm hoping to open England's eyes to England's own question because you know, it, it, the English don't like to think of themselves as a kind of troublesome split country, um, which they are.
1: It's interesting. Uh, we've had a number of requests for uh, details on how viewers can get your books.
0: In all good bookshops, it's in the windows of every Waterstones in the country, I believe, <laughs> he said, honestly. So, uh,
1: No, but see, see I mean, and I, I presume they can get it through Amazon if they're...
0: It, they kind of, so I wish I, although I prefer they got it through a nice little independent bookshop, obviously, since they pay tax.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, that, that, that's good. It, it, is there... Uh, it, I, I would like to get your views on a that debate that's it's fairly active in Scotland, because, you know, we have... Now, a a range of independence parties. We've got the SNP, we've got Alaba, we've got the Greens. The SNP and the Greens are now in government together. Um, uh, But we've got a whole bunch of other parties, ISP and others. Uh, The the question is this. Some people take the view that the best thing to do, since you can't trust Westminster, is to cut and run, use any device you can, UDI, whatever, whatever, and just go for it. Other folks say, no, no, cool it, take your time use a referendum, do it in a thoughtful, measured way. What's your take on that?
0: Um, I, I, I'd go for both. I, w- I would, you know, I'm a specialist in the long waves of history and I can, t- I can tell people that history is only going in one direction. You know, the, keep talking. The, I
1: need to plug in my computer. Just, so I shall disappear for yeah, a second. Yeah. Yeah,
0: we're, history is only going in one direction. The UK has been collapsing since 1921. It, it will, Scotland will be independent soon. On the other hand, you know, history doesn't, work on autopilot it needs people to push it forward so I would say to kind of you know go forward in confidence not feel that you have to be hurried if that means you're falling into some kind of trap laid by someone like my wicked and cunning friend John McTernan you know what I mean time is on the side of Scottish independence very clearly Um, and so while people should be pushing forward by any means including the UN including Europe I personally would be lobbying very hard to try and get France or Germany to say publicly, yes, we will welcome you back in straight away if you go independent, for example, which would change the game entirely and make it a question of months rather than years. Yeah. Um, but all these tactics should be tried short of falling into something like, okay, we're going to you know, send out the Fiery Cross and close the border tomorrow, you know, the, uh, which would probably be... Hasty, although romantic, I have
1: to say. Yeah. So your view is that uh, you've got a range of implements or tools. You need to use those as yeah. as as as, uh, as it requires as you work your way through this, and the support of people from uh, other countries is is helpful. I mean, I, I take your point. I mean, it's mind you, for, Germany or France to say you can rejoin the EU right away because the EU has certain rules and I think it would upset other countries if Scotland got a free pass, as it were. But you could join EFTA with a view to joining the EU over time, I suppose.
0: Or well, even an official statement, though, you know, both both Paris and Berlin would look favourably upon an application. That's all it would take, I suspect. Yeah. Um, and of course, there is there's, there, there's, there's a fundamental legal question. You know, we've, we've seen a lot in the papers recently how, how Tony Blair's own advisers have... Said openly that they suspect that Scotland does actually have the legal right to call a referendum, whether Westminster like it or not. Now, that 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 would count as as a slow and careful approach for me. It's anything that's 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 couched in the terms of law, um, and it, it, because because the way the diva, the way the devolution parliaments were set up, there was deliberately a kind of grey area in, in in what in their powers were that was left purposely, I think, uh, by Blair and, and the people who advised him a little little a little. Um, Easy, fuzzy, and if that, and if you can use a legal, a, a, a legal route which you discover, then so much the better. I don't, I don't think physical force is the answer, really. No,
1: no and, and I, I take it you're not terribly much in favour of a UDI.
0: Well, no, no, if uh, unless it had powerful support from somewhere else, I think. I mean, at the end of the day, every declaration of independence is a UDI in one way or another, you know, because what, one person is saying, OK, now you no longer have the power to block us. So it's, it's really it's, it's all a UDI. It's not a qualitative difference, I don't think. Um, so push push at it, but don't don't fall into any traps would be my would be my uh, advice can in the knowledge, on, the knowledge that time is on your side.
1: You know, uh, can we move on to talking about the claim of right? Because the claim of right has been passed by both uh, Holyrood and Westminster. Uh, and it contains um, a statement to the effect that uh, sovereignty in Scotland rests with the people. Mm. Um, now, that seems to me be a fairly broad concession by a, a parliament in Westminster uh, which uh, regards sovereignty being invested, invested, in the, invested in the Crown and Parliament. These are quite different concepts.
0: Absolutely. No, that's it. The, the, the devil, or in this case, the angel, is in the detail. Um, uh, it, it, and it may it may have been that someone drafted that carelessly, or they are now saying. But nevertheless, it's there. It's it's accepted in law. And I I think that um, I think the current state of play, where you have a coalition, um, it, it makes that claim all the stronger because the, the fact that you do have a majority now, not composed of one party, uh, for the very good reason, of course. And, and, and your your viewers may be interested to hear this. You know that I came across a paper rather by my, my son Owen, who's a welsh speaking evolution expert, um, found me a paper in which, uh, in 1997, the then Secretary of the, of the Labour Party in Scotland, a man called Macdonald, um, actually said, uh, in black and white, that the, 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 the arrangements they'd agreed for the upcoming Assembly was specifically designed to prevent the SNP ever becoming the largest, ever, ever having a majority. Um, quite so the fact that it now, with the Greens, has one, uh, is an extraordinary turnaround, and it goes to show that really nothing can stop history you know? Yeah. So, yes, I mean, I would absolutely, no, I would use every legal instrument, absolutely, that that, I mean, that counts as slow and steady. When I say slow and steady, I mean, just don't start throwing bottles necessarily, but pushing absolutely to the limit of what is or could be the law. Interesting.
1: I, I can't, I mean, we're moving along smartly here, but I need to ask you how you ended up singing with Adrian Dunbar in Copenhagen. The line of duty has never stopped me as a Not many years ago,
0: about the year 2001, I think. I was was doing a film thing, and I had my my then partner with me, who was a a wild and beautiful, ferocious Welsh nationalist and uh, Welsh speaker. And we ended up in Adrian Dunbar's room, and he began singing her Irish songs. And I could see that, you know, I was in big danger here, because how could a mere Englishman compete with Adrian Dunbar singing Irish songs to a Welsh nationalist? But I I managed to fish out Bonnie Dundee. In fact, uh, and, and, and seeing that a uh, full belt, which was just enough to, to, to win her back. So a school draw there. I, I left the room with the girl, despite it being Adrian Dunbar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You've also uh, been involved in uh, some uh, productions and TV. I mean, you're
0: uh, uh, You said the better there, by the way.
1: Really? But, but you are a, a series story consultant. Uh, on the BBC's upcoming landmark seven part TV documentary, The Making of Us, which is a well, story. That, of you know, that,
0: yeah, no, that, that's going to be great. Uh, that, that's going to be really good fun. I mean it's 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 a big thing. I, I I suspect I'm probably not allowed to talk about it that much at the present because it's under wraps It's still becoming okay. um okay. Becoming what it is, but it it's it's think the BBC themselves call it a landmark and I think rightly it's going to be a really interesting new look at at, at why these islands and I, and I use there are things we have in common, you know, uh, why these islands are so creative. And it's not because we're a peaceful bunch of polite Southern English, and it's because we are a set of islands riven again and again by massive tensions and invasions. Um, and I do think, because, you see, one important point for your, for your viewers to understand is this. The army, proud Edward's army, that invaded under the two Edwards at Stirling Stirling drawn at Falkirk then finally defeated at Bannockburn that army was entirely officered by French speakers it was not to cause an English national army is a very strange thing because uh, when when Robert de Bruce famously did his single combat with Brian de Bohun before the Battle of Bannockburn both of them would have given an answer to the challenge in French because and that's important because it's, very, it's dangerous and I think counterproductive for us now to try to map on modern nationalisms onto events in the past too tightly. We, we do not want a situation where nationalists anywhere, whether English or Scottish nationalists, asked it as, a, as an us and them of the ordinary people. Let us recall that the, you know, Edwards army, the English were mere grunts and servants for the French-speaking officers who ran it. The entire record of King Edward I's campaign in 1294 is in French still, yeah? And of course, Bruce and Balliol were themselves members of that Norman elite, which King David had brought into Scotland deliberately in, in the 12th century. So let's not let's not get into a kind of national populism on the kind of Russian, you know, the, the Ukraine mode of say, you know, because of our history, I therefore hate you because of whatever you are. Because the common people of the common people of, of, of Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and England were nothing to do with the creation of Great Britain or the United Kingdom. And the fact that they all actually want out of it, with the interesting exception of the Northern English, because they need the Celtic allies to defend themselves against the Southern English. Um, It means that we we do have things. We are more like each other in many ways than we are like French or Germans. We all buy rounds, for example. No German ever buys a round back. Have you noticed that? Um, An Irishman, Welshman, Scotsman, Englishman will do that. Um, But it's got to be on the basis of genuine free choice of the nations, of modern democratic nations freely choosing to associate as equals. That's the key. And that demands that, that that Scotland, Wales and Wales become independent first and then choose. If it is true, as I think it is, that there is something, we are in some ways like each other, we're neighbours for God's sake, we trade with each other, we, have, we are all entwined in history, the battles we fought in the wars and so forth. But that has to be a free choice made by free nations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would agree with, with much of what you've said. I, I don't want to get you into trouble by talking any more about this. About creativity, apart from what you, the fairly general remarks you've just made, uh, but uh, uh, you, you, you reckon you've also done a couple of screenplays uh, with Reese Evans. I don't, know Evans ones I don't want to
0: talk about. And Michael Sheen. <laughs> yes, I managed to blow. Just despite having Reese Evans and Joe Finds in one film, and, and Michael Sheen in the other one, they managed to both be a complete crock of shite. If you excuse my French. Due to the simple fact that I, in my youthful arrogance, didn't realise that writing a screenplay is, is an entirely different craft with its own rules and its own, its own skills. And I just thought, ha, I have a best know I notice. I can do this. Results was just utterly disastrous. <laughs> but we live and learn, you know?
1: We live and learn. We, uh, we've been asked, one of the questioners is asking, what would the rump UK be called? Lower Britain? Lesser Britain? What, ah. what? <laughs>
0: It, it should have the Rump you shade, it should have been called, it should have gone back to being called Great Britain clearly, and as I say, the the, the, the fact that people realise how ridiculous the partition of Ireland was, it, we can see in the fact that Westminster just ignored Ulster for the next twenty years until the beginning of the war when it needed it again, and just let it go its own way, becoming this weird state. You know, James Craig was the Prime Minister for life, effectively, of a, of a one-party state, effectively, which was a paramilitary state, effectively within the UK. Yeah, crazy stuff. Um. But what I mean, For me, the most fascinating thing about you know, what will be of the UK and, what, and about the leaving of Ireland is this, and, I, and it's one of the things I really wanted to say to your, to your viewers, about what shape, what, a, what an independent Scotland would be like, because I have a truly wonderful, scheme, a radical scheme for what that would be like, and I have four words to say to your viewers, uh, the Irish Land Acts. When Ireland was part of the UK, the government at Westminster enacted acts which had the effect of turning Ireland from a country where... You know, 95% of the land was owned by a few big landowners, grouse, s'mores and things, and everyone was just a tenant, into a country where everyone owned their own farm. That's the closest thing to, the, to you know, the Russian Revolution. It was done by the Westminster government at huge expense. They provided the mortgages for it. And I think that's the way ahead. Scotland, you have enough there. And according to the grouse lobby itself, and I should say I know anti-hunting, man. I actually, I've been hunting with dogs and I liked it um, several times. Um, but the grouse lobby itself, who are not going to underestimate these things, admit that there is enough land as a grouse More in Scotland to give every single person, not every single house, every single person half an acre. Now, think about what that means. It means if you, if you were to, to nationalise that and apportion it on the bay to properties, say that so every tower block in Dunfermline or every street in Glasgow or each village in the borders owns 2,000 acres, and it's tied to the property so whenever you move house that's part of the title of that property you take with you to do with as you wish within limits of conservation and sustainable development and all that you would transform the highlands from this utter myth which i despise my grandmother's from the highland from Cromity, which was in the Highlands. that her family moved moved from the highlands in the clearances to Cromarty, forced to become fishermen. fisherman um, ian rankin now owns her house i'm delighted to say um but that kind of you know the austere beauty of the highlands is entirely a thing of the last 250 years caused by kicking the people out that you, you, we could regenerate scotland could be turned into a country people long can live in imagine a country where you say to people if you come and live in scotland you are automatically when you buy a flat in dundee you are also automatically part of a group of people who between them, a small group of people a little community who between them own two thousand acres of the highlands to be wild, to build forests on, to put log cabins on, to have lovely new roads powered by Scottish wind-powered electricity with the power charged right the, way, right the way up to them, like the road to Fort William transformed things in the 18th century. You would turn the Highlands from a tourist vision of woe, bleak beauty, into somewhere alive again with the people.
1: And, and do you think that would work economically? Because right now you see what sustains a lot of the Highlands is tourism. And I can't imagine tourists being terribly, greatly attracted to individual oh, crofts and things,
0: would they? Well, it wouldn't be crofts. It, would it, would it would be just la- large sections of what's now Grouse Mall would be, would be, would be turned by the new community owners in, into different things, into a, a meadow full of wildflowers or, a, or a, an oak forest or, a, or whatever, whatever they wanted to do with it. They, there, there would be limits. You wouldn't be allowed to go and build a coal-fired power station, obviously, you know. <laughs> um, but it would be alive again with people. And I, th- I, th- I think people go to in the same way as they go to the Swedish lakes. You'd have a country of people who like the Canadians and like the Swedes all have a a bothy in the Highlands, you know, a communal one in this case, perhaps. Um, And, yeah, tourism is fine, but tourism is a very double-edged industry, as you know. In my opinion, my humble opinion, it breeds a certain kind of civility, a certain kind of what my Irish friends call the bored, vulture smile meaning a false smile of, of, of welcome when they're really after the money, it doesn't sustain many jobs directly. Though the, grouse more, the grouse industry itself only claims 4,000, which is nothing for 10 million acres and you can have 4,000 jobs. Forget it, you know. Mm. Um, so I, I would hope that an independent Scotland would have the vision to just totally transform itself, the way Ireland was transformed, by legislation, by not forcible expropriation, but the buying up with mortgages, with borrowed money, as the English government did in, in Ireland. Of, of the estates with long-term mortgages, backed by the World Bank, backed by Europe, backed by whoever, um, to transform the land ownership of Scotland, which is a historical huge problem in Scotland.
1: That's a very good point. I need to ask you a question. Uh, we've got about nine minutes left. It's a question I ask every um, <coughs> non-supporter of independence uh, uh, who takes a particular view on the, a unionist view on the uh, constitution, but I want it to get your answer on this as well, please. Their view when I ask them, why is there no right-wing nationalist party in Scotland? Because as a historian, you know that if you look across the world, it's very common to have right-wing nationalist parties when there's a secessionist move, separation is being considered. Why do you think there's no right-wing nationalist party in Scotland?
0: I think it's because that brand of of right-wing populism that we see quite terrifyingly in Russia we see it yeah, absolutely, and also terrifyingly in Trump's America, and we see it in Brexit. We see it on the wings of, of, the, of some, some people in France, the descendants of the people who tried to kill the goal now, um, is, is always, and in the AFD in Germany, of course, it, it's a product of people who were once in a colonial position of supremacy. And it's that feeling that, that your position as top dog has been robbed from you, as you said earlier, you know, by some evil conspiracy of someone, whatever it is, that leads you to embrace these really kind of blood and soil or racist or whatever you call it, attitudes towards other people and, and, and propose that you are somehow better than them, either culturally, genetically or whatever it's going whatever nonsense it is. And the countries which have not had that experience, such as Ireland, Scotland and Wales, Scotland very briefly had a colony in Darien, as we know disastrously, but uh, in, 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 in effect, neither Scotland nor Wales ever had a kind of Irish or Scottish or Welsh empire over whom they were told they were better. Because what happens when you have those situations is that the people in charge tell the, tell the ordinary grunts, you're better than them, you because know, you, you're, you're one of us, and, and what makes you better is you're part of this culture, this race. That's never happened. Now, arguably, it happened a bit to, it, to, all, to all the people in the British Isles or the Anglo-Celtic Isles um, during the Empire, but it happened mostly to the English, clearly. Uh, and because that hasn't happened, you don't get that kind of strident, revanchist, the past was great sort of nationalism. Because you know, why would anyone in Scotland, Wales, or Ireland think that the past was a great triumphant place? You know, kind of hard to, kind of hard to sell that one, whereas to an American or Russian or a Briton or a, some Germans you can still sell that idea to them that things were great in the old days, we're going to take it all back. Quick question about
1: Germany, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an election coming up soon. Who do you think is going to win it?
0: The polls all say, the Social Democrats and the Greens, whether they have enough together to make a coalition is seems to be the only question now outstanding. And I, I'm very delighted about it because... Um, Three or four years ago, you know, had all these people, the Brexit boosters, talking about the death of German social democracy, how the, uh, the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, their kind of Brexit party, was going to be taking over and everything. It's gone nowhere. And I, and I was saying at the time, don't worry, it will not happen. So you know, it's, it's good to put your cards on the table and be proved right. So I'm delighted to see um, this, the Germans, as they always have done for the last you know, 50 years, um, 75% of them are going to vote for parties which can make coalition to parties together, all of whom support NATO, all of whom support the EU. They're all basically decent, normal people. Um, and you know, a democracy has to be able to put up with 10% of lunies or 15% of lunies as uh, so long as the centre holds. So I, I think Europe should be very grateful that the German centre is holding there. Um, and it should be a lesson to us all maybe not to listen too, too strongly to the siren voices of, of mad poets. You know, I remember when I went to Sarajevo and I talked to some guy there who's been in charge of some Serbian artillery brigade bombing the place. And he said, ah, yes, I was, before that I was a professor of French poetry. I said, but it's so much more fun firing artillery. You know, the poets and the academics are always the dangerous ones because they're the ones who propose the mad extremes. So let's yeah. not less quiet progress towards a secure and certain goal, I would say.
1: Cool, cool. Are there any thoughts that you would like to leave the audience with that, uh, that James Hawes, speaking to a fairly eclectic bunch of people who are watching and listening tonight, any, any specific points that you feel that you thought you would like to leave with them?
0: I, I think fundamentally I hope people will, will go away from this programme, John, and, and just think, you know, good gracious, Really, it's true. The the, the UK is not some holy, eternal organisation. It's just a thing that was invented in 1801 and has been collapsing since 1921 and was given the death sentence in 2019 and is going to die very soon, the way things do. And that even Great Britain, constructed as it was without any consultation with either the Scottish or English people, for that matter, that is not a holy institution either, and that that too will soon be doomed. When, and, and that Scotland leaving the UK, stroke GB, will be an earth-shaking event in what it, in what it does to do, to do, 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 do do England, to Scotland, yeah. to Ireland, and even to Europe. It's it's the end of a huge chapter in in, a kind, in the history of these islands, and the beginning of something new. Yeah, it's it's.
1: Uh... <laughs> Your fan club is on tonight. George Aiken is saying, James, you are an inspiring person. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just trying to be honest, John, because I think that, you know, my job as a kind of, as a kind of historian I am is to see through all the detail and all the, the myths and the political things and just look at the long sweep of things and see, see how things came to be, what, what is past and passing and to come, as the poet Yeats put it. And and, uh, if I can help people do that, I'd be delighted. Uh, Other
1: folks are saying, Stephen Kelly says, Great show, James. Thank you. Grace Ward Carrick says, This has been a most interesting talk tonight. Such a clever man. Ah. Jackie Jensen. (laughs) Jackie, I'm blushing, as you can see, I am. (laughs) Jackie Jensen says, Really enjoyed this discussion. I learned lots. Thanks, James.
0: A great pleasure. A great pleasure.
1: What, what can any historian wish more than that, uh, their readership and their audience no, uh, uh, chimes absolutely. with what they have to say?
0: Never in the, the, the pleasure of that never fades, I have to say, John. It's just lovely to hear that. So thank you to all your kind viewers who've said that. It really does make, make your day. Well, it's
1: these, nice. these are, un, are completely unsolicited. I mean, these, these are folks who've been watching and listening to you tonight. And I think uh, it would be... Um, wrong of me to try and suggest why they're saying the things they're saying aside from the fact that you have been hugely entertaining and uh, educational and it's been uh, a really excellent experience all around because I mean I think a lot of people have learned a lot from what you've been saying tonight because apart from anything else uh, what you've been saying is not covered in the mass media No, No. aside from this show Right, James, James Hawes would not have been known about, I suspect, by a lot of people watching and listening tonight. No, no, no,
0: no, that's certainly true. I'm very grateful for it. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, it, it's, it's... The way things get lost, to say, John, one of the things you just mentioned in passing, it's extraordinary fact that, you know, how many people not watching this show you know, are, are, are aware that there was a, you know, a Scottish independent or Home Rule Bill for Scotland on its way through Parliament as the policy of the government of the day when, when the First World War stopped things. You know, that, that's when I say the history is going one way. I mean, it's, it, the evidence is there before our eyes.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. No question. Excellent.
1: Super. Thank you very much indeed, James. I, I need it's to a pleasure. And
0: I, due to my childhood, I always
1: love to hear a Scottish accent, I have to say.
0: <laughs> Let
1: me make a few concluding remarks, if I may, uh, Big thank you to James, obviously. A big thank you to all of you for watching uh, tonight. Uh, You Clearly, many of you have enjoyed the show. That's terrific. Tell your friends and neighbours so that they can enjoy it too. As ever, we have some great guests lined up for future shows. uh, And this is a place for the big hitters. Next week, we're back at the same time with another special guest, and that's Yes Activist Mike Fennick. He'll be joining us next Wednesday. I hope you'll be joining us too. And always a reminder to look out for the Constitution column in the uh, Seven days Supplement in the Sunday National, Dr Elliot Boomer will be talking about a few of the references that James has made tonight about how the elite in Scotland uh, have become somewhat estranged from the whole question of independence and why that might, might likely change. Uh, thanks again. Please join us next Wednesday. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. We hear that Boris Johnson still plans to attend the Climate Change meeting in Glasgow, despite reneging on climate change commitments, what's new. <laughs> so to all of you, thanks for joining us this evening. A big thank you to James. Please stay safe and take care. Good night, everyone.: Good night.